Unfortunately, death is inevitable. We will all die at some point. And how we die, we should be able to say what things we absolutely do not want to happen. Hi, I'm Bobby, a certified caregiving consultant and educator, caregiver support group leader, and international presenter on caregiving issues. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and certified music therapist. And I also speak, but only nationally, on (laughs) caregiver issues. So far. So far. (laughs) And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here we focus on the caregiver, offer practical insights, and share some emotional support. And we might even share a laugh or two, because we all know laughter is the best medicine. It absolutely is. But I do want to remind you, don't forget the wine, Mike. No, I'll never (laughs) forget the wine. (laughs) You know, when my dad came to live with us, almost immediately, we had an advanced medical directive medical power of attorney, and later on, uh, DNR. But we had the medical directive and the medical power of attorney at the very beginning of our caregiving for my dad. But there were still times, even though we had those items in place, where we were overwhelmed by the stressful situation of emergency room visits. Yes, and there were a lot of them. And I can only imagine that so many people, if not most people, feel that kind of pressure Because even if you put something like that in place, when it actually comes to, you know, there may be a death in the family, it it becomes, you you begin to question yourself. And and we have a situation where our our daughter refuses to even discuss the fact that one of us may be in that situation. So I am so pleased that we have today's guest, who is a MD, who knows firsthand the frustration and overwhelm caregivers encounter when making medical decisions for their loved ones with dementia. She helps families navigate decision-making in the emergency department so they can feel their loved one's wishes are understood and followed. Now she's helping caregivers prepare for these decisions before a medical crisis happens through an online course with personalized support. Please welcome to Roger That, Dr. Brittany Lamb. Doctor, I am telling you, I am so interested in what you have to say today because I know that I have a lot more days behind me than I have in front of me, simply by the fact that I'm in my 70s. And I know my children will be heartbroken, but I also want them to understand some of this process and you can help them do that. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here today and talk with you guys. And I know this is not a fun topic sometimes to discuss, and it's really, really hard. Um, but I'm hoping that, you know, by conversations like this, we can make it more normalized and um, maybe more comfortable for our, for our family members. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I've spoken about is having the difficult conversations with your family members, your loved ones, and so on. And that difficult decision or that difficult conversation comes around life insurance, advanced medical directives, power of attorney, financial, power of attorney, medical, DNRs, and things of that sort. And how do you get that conversation started? And I don't know that I do an extremely good job on how to get the conversation started, but I do really push, you got to have this conversation. The risk avoidance isn't the answer. But I also think sometimes it's the child feeling uncomfortable talking to their older parent about it. Right. But I also want to include the older parent talking to their child about it. Yeah. I think that everybody has 
you know, the right to be able to choose what things they do and do not want to happen to them. But I feel that our, our system is not set up to educate people so they can make informed decisions. You know, we ask people, what do you, what do you want to do? What are you thinking? Like, do you, do you want to be hospitalized? Do you want critical care? But do people actually understand what those things mean? And I think that's part of the problem is that there's a lack of, there's a lack of knowledge. If you don't have someone in your family that is in healthcare that can help break these things down and explain them to you in layman's terms. Um, but I think what you guys are saying is, is crucial. I mean, you have to, you have to say, I mean, unfortunately, fortunately, whatever death is inevitable. We were, we will all die at some point and how we die. We should be able to say what things we absolutely do not want to happen. Um, and we can, we can adjust those decisions over time as we develop different disease processes. I mean, you don't have to make one decision and stick with it for forever. I mean, things should be adjusted as someone's quality of life changes. Um, you can be a little bit more aggressive in the beginning, you know, if that's part of what your goals are. If your quality of life is good and you want to work hard to prolong that um, quality of life. But if somebody somebody has a worsening functional status and worsening quality of life, you may choose not to have more aggressive treatments. And that may be kind of a way to frame things with family members. Right. I know with my dad, you know, growing up and even as an adult, he was this robust husky, you know, he had deltoids like a half a grapefruit um, <laughs> or a half a cantaloupe and biceps like a half a grapefruit. And, you know, he was 240, 245 pounds. Well, later on, as the diseases took over and age took over, when he passed, he was in the 130s. Yeah. And he had had um, open heart surgery and a valve put in right around 1999. And so to start doing the CPR compressions at that point in time, two years before he passed away, would be horrible for somebody that small, frail, and having had his chest cut open before. Yeah. Just not the answer. And that's one of the things that were in the advanced medical directives and the DNR eventually. Yeah. One thing people don't realize is that when you're someone's medical power of attorney, you, you, you can put them under a DNR. I think people forget that sometimes. They think that those things need to be done ahead of time. Um, and the other really important form that you can use as someone's medical power of attorney, at least in Virginia, it's called the post form, but right. uh, nationally, I think it's more commonly known as post. Um, and that's that also you can use that form as kind of a way to frame a conversation um, with family members. But but you're absolutely right. I mean, if someone is very frail, frail and elderly and we think that, you know, their outcome of surviving CPR is low to start with, you know. I mean, out of hospital cardiac arrest, I mean, you're looking at maybe just over 10% for all comers to survive that. And then in hospital cardiac arrests, 25, 40% of people survive. And we're not talking about, we're not, we're not talking about patients with dementia. You know, we're not talking about all, you know, patients that are older, 60, over 65 have a much less um, chance of surviving CPR. So um, it's definitely something you think about. Um, and I, I tend to, I tend to maybe be a little bit more forward in my conversations with family members and, and tell them, would you like to know my medical opinion about whether or not I believe your loved one would survive CPR? You know, are you okay with me talking about that? And I, you know, I usually will frame it like my medical recommendation is that, 
we don't we don't do that. I have two things. Um, the first, the um, DNR, we received a yellow document that we were told to put on the refrigerator. So because if we say we called an ambulance and the emergency people came in and they didn't see that, they were mandated to do everything they could and they would do CPR because that's what they were told to do unless we had that document. And I, I would like to have your reaction to that. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. <laughs> that's what will happen if you don't have a DNR form, even if you're verbally telling paramedics that you don't, that your loved one doesn't want CPR in most states. And I mean, it depends on the jurisdiction and the rules in that area. But yeah, I mean, most, most medics have to have the form. They have to have it. But one thing I wanted to clarify is that, you know, if you if your loved one is hospitalized for something and in the hospital, you make the decision that we're not going to do CPR or put them on a ventilator, you need to make sure when they leave the hospital that they have a DNR form then in that at, then at home or in their living facility. I can't tell you how many times I've had patients where they roll into the ER. I look at their code status when they were in the hospital, they were DNR, allow natural death, and then they don't have a DNR form from the from their facility it says their full code right that was my other question because one of the one of the issues we dealt with um, with Roger there was a time when he had he'd had a psychotic break and he ended up on the psych ward for eight weeks and then he came home for two days and then he was on the medical ward well the nurses and the medical staff did not read what had happened in that previous eight weeks, not understanding that he was schizophrenic with a tendency to cheek his medicine and spit it out. So he had stopped taking his medicine again. But, you know, they have these wonderful systems where everything's on a computer and the, the computer gets rolled into the room, but the message doesn't get to the other side of the hospital. Yeah, that happens pretty commonly. You know, we have, I mean, we have great electronic medical records these days, but not every hospital, not every hospital communicates with every other hospital. Um, I mean, in my hospital, one of the freestanding ERs that I work in, I can't see the long-term nursing care notes from upstairs. You know, they're in the same building and people don't understand like why we can't see their notes. So yeah, this was the same hospital. Yeah, I don't know. That's tough. I mean, that's really tough. I, I don't I don't know why that would happen. <laughs> well, we um, she actually had the situation where she called the you know the patient's advocate and had this meeting yeah. with all the you know he had a number of comorbidities going on, and so got all the different doctors in the room and they actually saw each other and the nursing supervisor. <laughs> and a nursing supervisor. And that started a conversation between them when it come time to change this medicine for his um, psychiatry. How would that impact, hey, cardiologist, how will this impact? Right. Well, let me change my medicine to go coincide with that, or maybe there's something else. And there was some dialogue then, but nobody could see the psych records. Okay. And I'm sure that had something to do with HIPAA. Maybe. I mean, I and I don't work in the inpatient side of things, so I'm not sure why that would be, but that's, you know, it's medically relevant. It's a medical disease, you know. So, um, but I but I think that brings up a good point that 
you know, having these meetings and asking for the team to come together is something that you should do. You know, I mean, we have patient advocates in every hospital um, that I'm aware of, and we have social workers and caseworkers that their entire job is to help mm-hmm. with discharge planning and, and you know, and figuring out logistics. And so, you know, I, I always encourage people to kill kill the hospital staff with kindness. Absolutely. <laughs> I think if you're super, super nice and saying, thank you so much and, you know, always being, and I know that that, you know, I know it's tough, but it's it's a tough place to work. And so if you kill people with kindness, I think you get better results. I really do. Well, and, you know, one of the things that we said to them when we had this initial meeting and we had several meetings through his um, carriers was, I understand that you're busy. I understand that you've got hundreds of patients. I have one. And I am going to do everything I can to get everybody on the same page so I can help make your job easier. And one of the things that I did, and not anybody can do it, I used to say when he was admitted to the hospital, so was I. Because I would go in in the morning, you know, and help him with breakfast because he had dysphagia and he had swallowing problems. And sometimes Mm -hmm. that message didn't get to the kitchens. And I would stay until, you know, he was settled in for the night. And sometimes the doctors would ask me if I ever left the hospital. But somebody with dementia, with all of this stuff going on, who not only couldn't explain it, would try to hide what his needs were. He needed me there with him. But I think most of us in this day and age, and before COVID, now we can't do it, need somebody to be with them during their hospital state to to watch over things. Yeah, I totally agree. Everybody needs an advocate, and that's with or without dementia. You know, if you're sick enough to be in a hospital, you could use another brain watching over you yeah. that knows you, that loves you, that knows the ins and outs of who you are, you know, what things make you happy, what things, you know calm you down, what you like to do. Yeah, I mean, everyone could use that. Now, Dr. Lamb, I was on your website, or I'm sorry, your Facebook page, I, I believe. I'm working on a website. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was on your, your Facebook page. And uh-huh. I, I saw a few of your videos. And okay. one of the videos that I thought was absolutely wonderful was the one about, you know, it might be uncomfortable for the person if you're telling me, the medical professional, that they have dementia. Yeah. And how, and, and there were tips on how to communicate that to the medical staff to not embarrass the person so much. Yeah. But also, you as the medical professional did need to know. Oh, yeah. Could you go through that with yeah. our listeners? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, you know, in the earlier stages of the disease, people are very sen- can be very sensitive to the diagnosis, understandably so. Um, but if it can be very easy to miss that someone has dementia. I had a patient several months ago that came in, his blood pressure was high, and he was very upset about his blood pressure, and it was high. But he didn't have any symptoms, you know, that were concerning to me he was so fixated on it. And I was explaining to him, you know, that we had looked and we didn't find anything and that, you know, he just needed to, you know, take his medications at home and keep a diary and follow up with his doctor. And I could just tell something wasn't sinking in. And then he, he kind of got flustered and he asked to go to the bathroom. So I unhooked him and let him go to the bathroom. And then his wife, she was like, Oh my goodness, he has, he has dementia. I didn't know how to tell you. And it wasn't in his record. And, you know, I had a long conversation with her about all the things that I thought she could do to try to, um, 
explain to the medical staff kind of under the table that that was going on. And so it's so important because, you know, he won't, he won't, he doesn't, he's not there enough to be able to make his own decisions and he won't be able to remember what I told him to that, that would reassure him about his blood pressure. And he was so, his blood pressure was high because he was upset. I mean, that's what, that was why. Mm -hmm. Um, And he probably wasn't taking his medications correctly, but yeah, it's really important to communicate with us. And I think, you know, there's multiple things you can do. You can write a little note on your phone and flash it to us. You can make a little like business cards that you print out and you can use those in, you know, day-to-day settings. If you go somewhere in public and your loved one is doing something that's, you know, not necessarily socially acceptable or normal behavior in quotes, you know, um, you can slip that to somebody. Um, and then the thing I said in my video was that the medication list being updated is so important. And I love having a physical medication list because I tend to not trust our computer as much. And so if you write at the top of that, my loved one has dementia, I help them make their medical decisions. Please, you know, consult me. That's very helpful. Now, uh, we, I had what they call a, a, a what bag. I called a go bag. And in there, not only was his medicine a list, but a couple of each one just in case until they got in the hospital and they, they could get those medications there. You know, a change of clothes, a snack, all kinds of stuff for both of us. Oh, yes. Oh, and, yes. <laughs> and so because we had so many hospitalizations for for reasons small and great and just get in the car and go and not worry about, okay, where's this medicines? How can I remember this? But even before he came to live with us and, you know, he had issues that he always, in his wallet, he had a list of his medications. He might not take them. He might not take them, (laughs) but he could tell the doctor what they were. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. I think that's really important. A go bag is such a good idea. Um, And I think having a copy of advanced directives in your go bag is a good idea, Um, especially, you know, I don't know what kind of advanced directives you're your father had, but, um, but the living will and, you know, what other, whatever other planning documents, maybe your medical power of attorney form, if you haven't had it put on file with the hospital, um, that's important. I think extra medications is a, is a good idea, especially if it's something that is a little bit more rare. Some people are on biologic medications. Some people are on, you know, oral chemotherapy and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, snacks is a good idea, but don't eat them unless the ER staff tells you exactly. you'll yeah, get in right. trouble. <laughs> and I would put up signs in his room because he had dysphagia. Uh-huh. And so I would, you know, he wasn't allowed to use a straw. His food had to be pureed. His liquids thickened. He had to be monitored to make sure he took small bites. Well, the kitchen staff doesn't know that. And they would bring in the tray and set it there. Um, so I had signs, no straws, thick and liquids. Uh, <laughs> I posted them up on the wall. I, and, yeah. and even sometimes that didn't get through. But you do the best that you can. But Brittany, yeah. I would really hope that we can get you engaged in sharing with us and with our listeners. You walk into an emergency room and there's a patient there and the family member is beside themselves, not knowing what to do. Mm-hmm. And you, I believe that's part of what you do is have this conversation with them and kind of advise them which direction to take. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously it depends on the situation. So, you know, if someone is critically ill, we don't have a lot of time to make choices. Um, 
But I typically will ask patients things like patient, patients, family members, things like, you know, what does this person do every day? Um, what are they like? What's their normal day like? Are they able, what kind of activities are they able to do? Cause I'm trying to get a baseline functional status of what this person is like, because that kind of tells me a part of quality of life. Um, that's that to me, I feel like people fall into two camps. They fall into a, I want everything done to me. I don't, I don't, um, it doesn't matter to me so much about sacrificing my comfort. I want to be kept alive. That's my goal. It's my belief and what I want. And then there's another camp of people that are more into quality versus quantity. And so I try to figure that out pretty quickly when I'm trying to help families make decisions Um, because the default in medicine is to do everything. And so if you're in that first group of people, that is, you know, that's what's going to happen. Um, and, and in that second group of people, it's really, you know, what is their quality of life like? What situation do we have going on right now? What are the options from most least, from least aggressive to most aggressive in, as far as treatment goes? And what's going to line up with what they care about? You know, what, you know, what is their quality of life? Like, that's what I really try to figure out with families. Um, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but that's kind of the thought process that I have when you started talking about that. I'm guessing not only the quality of life prior to them coming in, but what's going to be the quality of life, the outcome. Yeah, that's important to think about for sure. We talk about things like that. It just, it really depends on the situation that you're dealing with, right? So if you're, if you're trying to weigh out whether or not someone's going to stay in the hospital or you're trying to weigh out whether or not you're going to, I think a lot of times people, people come in, maybe for an example, we can talk about like urinary tract infections, Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, sometimes people, people have reoccurring urinary tract infections and they can get sepsis, you know, which is a systemic, so whole body response to infection where you can have multiple organ systems that become involved and irritated. And some people even go into a shock state, which is low blood pressure, essentially. So if, you're low, if your blood pressure is low, you're not going to get blood flow to your, your brain, your kidneys, your heart, right? And so you can go into organ failure from, from an infection like, like urinary tract infections. And so I think that thinking about how we're going to treat it, it does matter on what their quality of life is like now and, and what their situation is right now. How critically ill are they and how likely do we think that they will regain their current quality of life? You know, by aggressively treating something like infection, if someone has progressive or severe dementia and their baseline quality of life is not one that they would want to continue, it does not make sense to continue antibiotics and to continue, you know, or start um, critical care, you know, giving them lots of fluids and medications to raise their blood pressure, you know, in a, in a critical care setting. So, um, yeah, you have to think about if they survive this, what will they be like? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, I imagine... There's a lot of that being seen now with people coming in with COVID and even you know, especially before the vaccines. Yeah. And I have to say that absolutely terrifies me. The, I, the, the feeling that I'm suffocating. Um, and then somebody has, the decision is made whether to intubate or not. Yeah. So I don't go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I'm scared. <laughs> Well, I hear you. I mean, we are, I think we're, you know, this is February of 2022. I mean, where the Omicron variant is not as bad and I'm not seeing as many people becoming critically ill from it, although we still see that, you know. Um, But yes, in the spring of 2020, 
it was bad. And I had a lot of patients from living facilities that had not seen their family members, you know, a lot of seniors that had dementia that had pretty severe dementia that came in very, very sick and and basically in respiratory failure from, from COVID pneumonia. Um, And I had a lot of conversations over the phone with people about what they wanted to do. And it was really tough. Um, It was really tough on caregivers making those choices. Um, Lots of long conversations. Two things I want to get to while we we have you. Yeah. Um, One is you have a closed Facebook page and how do people get access to that is number one. Okay. And then number two, I would like for you to talk about your online course. Yeah. So so the Facebook group, it's it's a anyone can join it. It just you have to request to join it and just answer the the questions and basically say that you're agree to the group rules. Um, but that group is for caregivers who are caring for a loved one with dementia that want help with navigating medical decision making. Um, I actually recently changed the name of it. So it was end of life planning for your loved one with dementia, but now it's medical decision making for your loved one with dementia. And so you can just request to join it um, and you can get to it from my personal profile or from um, my Facebook, my business Facebook page. And you can also just search it um, on Facebook. And then as far as the course goes, so it's very much new and in development, you know, February of 2022 right now, you know, I'm looking to enroll people into a course that in the beginning stages of this, it's going to be very individualized based on what their needs are. So I really want to teach people all the medical complications of dementia, the most common things that I see in the ER and how we treat those things from least to most aggressive. And then also I want to, I want to teach people the medical complications of getting older and what happens, you know, to people that is unrelated to dementia and the same thing, least to most aggressive I want to teach people how to figure out their loved one's quality of life and navigating that and trying to figure out when are we going to change and maybe focus more on comfort um, if that's in line with their loved one's wishes. So it's going to be probably like an eight week course. And so I'll give, I'll give, um, you know, weekly videos and then people can have a, 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 basically a conversation with me in a group setting once a week for answering questions and getting feedback and stuff like that. Sign me up. Um, <laughs> so, and, and, it, and it is going to be a paid course. So I'm hoping to get people on the phone to talk to me about it so that I can answer all their questions and, um, and then we can figure out whether or not we feel we're a good fit to work together. Because I, you know, if you're not the medical decision maker for your loved one and you don't have medical power of attorney, people won't be able to really take action on these things. And so I, you know, I want to work with people who are ready to do that. And I want to work with people who are who are planners and they want all the access to all the information they can get and they want to make these decisions kind of ahead of time knowing they can adjust them as they go. Kelly needs to Kelly needs to take this. Yeah. Our daughter. <laughs> I mean she's yeah. if Mike's not available she's the one and you know we have we have four kids all with different skills but this is the one that's going to be the decision maker. So she she definitely needs to take this yeah. course. And and she's very close. And she's very much a planner. She wants to know all the she would pummel you with questions. <laughs> I love it. I <laughs> you know, I just think that it's it's well what we do in the emergency department is not like what you see on television and I would love to teach people about what is actually happening so that they can make informed decisions and feel confident. I I hate seeing people make decisions based out of guilt and 
and fear. Mm -hmm. One of the things that Bobby speaks about a lot, and I speak about a lot, is the importance of preparation and planning and having those documents and knowing where those documents are. Yeah. She does a whole presentation on preparative care, and I'm glad that you emphasize that those types of things need to take place prior to the emergency, very stressful, emotional situation. Yeah. I have learned so, so much. Thank you for being on the show, and I'm sure our listeners will get a lot out of it. We'll put a link to your Facebook page on our website so that people can reach back to you. Sounds good. Thank you so much. We'll be looking forward to that online course for sure. And <laughs> I, I, I appreciate your, you know, backing up what I talked about was getting that care team in place within the hospital. You know, if you're dealing with yes. with multiple doctors and the nursing staff and the and the patient advocate, because the patient advocate is there to help you as as everybody else is. Yeah. And as Mike said, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm happy to meet you guys. And I'm happy to be met. (laughs) One of the things that I thought was great today was looking at the quality of life before the emergency and then looking at what the quality of life will be after the emergency. Mm -hmm. People don't look at both sides of that coin. They only look at the one side. And that's very, very important. So remember that when you're taking care of me. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) We certainly appreciated Dr. Lamb being on the show, and we will certainly link to her Facebook page because there is a lot of great, great information there. Absolutely. You can find more information about Dr. Lamb in a link to her Facebook page on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show, go to iTunes, post a review, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. Roger That is produced by Missing Link a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast raising the bar on craft cocktails. Here you meet interesting folks, enjoy boozy banter, and learn how to make craft cocktails from a master. And if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and all those in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows as your review helps our show reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company.